Nine out of ten hiring managers are having difficulty hiring today. Robert Half is here to help. At Robert Half, we know talent. Visit roberthalf.com today. Hello and welcome to Money Beat Week. This is Steve Grosser with John Carney, Paul Avenia, Eric Holm, and Liam Denning from San Francisco. It's been a busy week and deals after this. At 30,000 feet, there's no room for error. To keep a modern fighter jet flying safely year after year requires a highly trained team of expert technicians and specialized equipment. Echo 311 confirming final inspection. Roger that. GMC certified service technicians take service and maintenance just as seriously. And we'll do a full 27-point inspection. Great, thanks. With specialized GMC training and genuine parts for every GMC vehicle, you can be sure your GMC is always ready to take off. Incredible thinking, incredible service. GMC certified service. That's professional grade. Get AC Delco Professional Durastop brake pads installed for only $99.95 or less per axle. Includes rotor inspection. Retail customers only. Turning or replacing rotors, all other services, and tax extra. Visit GMCCertifiedService.com for details, other great offers, and to find your closest GMC dealer. Liam. You got, last night, late, the Wall Street Journal broke. Baker Hughes could be bought by Halliburton. There was no price tag on the deal, but analysts are looking, you know, 20-plus billion dollars. What's your your sort of take? Why does this deal make sense, and who should be concerned about this deal? Well, the deal kind of makes sense and doesn't make sense. Uh, And it's partly because... um, So, you know, it's partly down to timing. So this news broke yesterday... Which was um, which was also the day you saw oil dip below seventy five dollars. So that kind of gives you the rationale for why this deal might happen. Because for oil field services guys like Baker and Halliburton, you know they're really at the sharp end of the oil cycle. So what tends to happen is the oil price goes down, the outlook for the oil price goes down. That causes oil companies to start reining in their spending. Now we haven't actually seen that happen to date really with the uh, the US exploration and production companies <clears throat> but we have seen it happen with the big international majors and um, that's quite a big um, uh, set of the, the clients that Halliburton and Baker Hughes serve okay. so when they see the oil price go down <clears throat> you know they want to um, think about how they can uh, deal with that how they can cut costs and one obvious way to do it is to um, is to merge, which is which is you know is exactly how these companies were really formed in their current uh, state at the end of the 90s, which was the last time we had a big uh, oil price crash. So that's the rationale, and I've been running the numbers on it this morning for a, a, a column that's going to come out in the next few days. Um, and you know, on paper, it does make uh, a huge amount of sense. You factor in some synergies, um, and uh, you know, you could easily see. Uh, Halliburton's earnings uh, accretion uh, somewhere in the range of, say, 10 to 20%. Um, you see a big uplift in value for Baker Hughes. I mean, these are all movable feasts because we don't actually have any numbers on this yet, but right. on paper it makes sense. Now we turn to the other side of the equation. So shareholders are really only one set of people that you have to satisfy in a deal. The other two big uh, constituents that these guys have to factor in are one, their customers, and two, regulators. 
So on the customer side, if you go back to what I was saying about the oil price, the other guys who are at the sharp end of that oil price fall are the exploration and production companies. Now, the last thing they're going to want to see as they see their margins being squeezed is two of their biggest suppliers getting together uh, because then they will have much higher market share. They'll be able to um, you know, uh, use rational pricing, which is the euphemism that analysts use for, um, for effectively getting higher prices because the market is more concentrated. So my sense is that they are going to lobby the hell out of Washington um, to make sure that this deal uh, gets blocked on antitrust grounds because uh, Baker Hughes and uh, Halliburton are basically two of the three biggest oil services firms in the world. They have number one to three positions in virtually any subsector of the oil services business you can name apart from a few. Um, so the market concentration issue is real here, um, and that brings us to the regulators. They are definitely go- definitely going to scrutinize this, not just in the U.S., where these uh, these two guys are big players, um, but also in Europe, where they're also big. Um, you could even see, um, you know, governments elsewhere, China maybe, China. Um, because these guys service oil clients around the world. What does this also say about oil prices and is this sort of showing like you know companies are getting concerned that the fallen oil price is here to sort of stay or it's going to be around for a while um well it's an interesting point um that was actually one of the first things that occurred to me when i looked at this because in a way go back to the point i was saying about the oil price falling and that leading companies to want to try and you know indulge in a little self-help by merging and cutting costs and that sort of thing. So in one sense, it makes sense. But the oil price has moved very rapidly uh, in the last few months. Um, You know, you've had a rapid move in three months, but that comes after three years where it basically held steady. Now, to me, if you're a, a shareholder of a company like Baker Hughes, you might say, well, I'd rather see where the oil price bottoms out rather than do a deal right now when everyone's kind of panicking because say oil prices stop falling and say next year they you know start rising again maybe not a full recovery but you know they they stabilize somewhere in the kind of 75 to 80 range which could happen um if that happens the stock which has been battered recently would likely uh stabilize, probably go up because that that kind of panic would come out of the market. And then Baker Hughes shareholders could uh, extract a higher price from anyone trying to make a bid like Halliburton. So in that sense, I actually find this news kind of bearish because if Baker Hughes is seriously considering merging with Halliburton at this point, that suggests to me that they have a fairly pessimistic outlook on what's going to happen with oil prices next year and by extension uh, capital expenditure by their clients, i.e. the EMP companies. So it sends a fairly bearish signal. It, su- it suggests that they don't have a huge amount of faith in a rebound next year and so are seriously considering doing this deal in order to you know, offset that by going for cost cuts, etc. Liam, mm-hmm. uh, one of the – I mean – in terms of like their insight into their customers, I mean, these two companies are probably really well positioned to, you know, figure out what the uh, exploration companies are 
are going to be doing next year. You know, they're presumably, you know, sitting around talking to their customers about what kind of orders they're going to be placing. And so, and since their market share is so high, I mean, they, they, this probably, they probably do have a really good insight into that, right? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, one of the, because the, the first thing that tends to happen when the oil price comes down like this, um, and actually we're just getting towards the end of the third quarter report, um, report season for the EMP companies. And interesting, what, interestingly, what you found with the EMP companies, uh, particularly the, the North American ones, is they haven't actually said a lot about cutting budgets as yet, not publicly anyway. Um, they've talked about uh, maybe directing, directing spending um, to um, you know, higher return areas and that sort of thing. Really kind of stuff around the edges. However, I'm fairly certain that if we don't see a quick rebound in prices, which to me doesn't look likely, they are definitely going to start demanding discounts from their suppliers. And, and that's the first thing they'll do before they, want, before they cut back production. Because the EMP companies, um, they're not like the majors. Their stocks tend to move um, in terms of where people think their growth targets are going. They, they move very much on how quickly they're growing production. And in a way, that brings us back to the point I was making earlier about market power and their, um, the, the EMP companies not really wanting to see two big suppliers merging because as the oil price goes down, they're going to want discounts. They're going to want more comp- competition among their suppliers, not less. Does this, is this going to trigger any kind of, you know, other companies doing deals in the space? I mean, it's Lumberger. I mean, it's the biggest – does it have room um, to you know to look to make you know do a deal, or is it you know sort of are regulators just going to sort of block anything? Not a, I, I can't see them doing a deal of this scale. I mean, at, at this level, you're talking about if you look at something like drill bits, for example. Yeah. So, drill bits, Schlumberger, and this is data from Morgan Stanley, but Schlumberger has about a 14% share, which is not very high. Um, but if you put together Baker Hughes and Halliburton, their market share would be 30%. So then you would have the top three, the top two players in the market controlling nearly half the market. And that kind of thing is actually, you know, I could go through a bunch of other rather boring technical um, uh, subsectors of the oil services business. But um, you get the picture. If this deal were allowed through and... Um, and there weren't any remedies, which I can't believe. I mean, if if this deal were allowed through, I would imagine regulators would almost certainly demand that certain parts of the business be sold. And at that point, you start to get into whether the deal still makes sense if they have to sell bits. But that's another point. Um, if that deal went through, you know, I, I really can't see Schlumberger or someone else doing a deal um, of that scale. I mean, there are continuing deals in the oil field services sector, but they tend to be fairly small things where particularly one of the big conglomerate players like Schlumberger or Halliburton or Baker Hughes are looking to fill in a certain area of expertise that they don't have. So those deals will continue. And indeed, if this deal did go, were you know, put forward and did go through, they would almost certainly have to sell some businesses, and then you could see those businesses being picked up by other people. So it would, it would spawn some M&A in that regard, but I, I couldn't see 
another deal of this scale being done if this one were allowed. If this is allowed, if it goes through, I mean, it sounds like that's pretty bad news for the E&P businesses because it takes away their ability to, as you're saying, you know, demand discounts, right. which, which then means they either have to, you know, put up with high costs, which they, you know, that might not make sense in light of what, you know, pricing they're, they're getting for uh, production, or they have to, you know, curb start drilling. curb drilling much quicker. And as you were saying, they, if you're an EMP company, you really don't want to curb drilling because your price, your share price moves on where people think you're, you know, how much drilling you're doing. Exactly. I mean, that's precisely why that sector is, is if you chart the EMP sector versus the oil price over the last three months, they, they track each other almost perfectly, just straight down by about a quarter. And so, if they, you know, when if the deal does go through, um, and they lose this pricing power, then they 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 have to start cutting back much quicker than uh, than they would have naturally, you know, given the prices. And uh, you know, in some ways, that makes me question again the deal, right? Because if their response is going to be, well, if we can't get discounts, then we just have to buy less, you know, bits and pieces from. Uh, the Halliburton uh, merged company, um, and in that case, you know, it, it doesn't that become counterproductive? Yeah, and, and I would imagine that that would that would form a big part of the argument um, for those customers that that might oppose this deal. You know, they would they would they would be lobbying to say, look, you know. This market is already reasonably concentrated. You already have three big players, um, you know, with sizable market shares. Not necessarily dominant market shares in everything, but with sizable market shares in certain areas. Um, we're already facing a margin squeeze. You don't want to kill this golden goose. I mean, you can see how the argument would go. Yeah, I mean, I mean, mm -hmm. because the deal kind of makes sense on the basis of them getting pricing power. That, that's also the argument against the deal, right? You say, well, the only reason they'd want to do this deal is so that they could, you know, keep prices up. And then you say, well, you know, isn't that a problem with antitrust? Right. I mean, I, I guess from their side, though, they would argue a couple of things. One is they would argue, well, part of this is also so that we can cut costs. Sure. And there's certainly a lot of overlap. You can certainly see a lot of, you know, you could easily get to, I would say, somewhere between half a billion and a billion a year and towards the top end of that range of, uh, of synergies for these businesses. And of course, they, they would argue, what, you know, we can use those synergies to be more efficient and thereby actually cut prices. Um, cut yeah. prices. I mean, you know, make of that what you will. Um, there is another angle that I think Halliburton and Baker Hughes, um, well, Halliburton and Baker Hughes shareholders might benefit, which is if they got together. Um, they t these stocks tend to trade at a discount to the gold standard in the sector, which is Schlumberger, and I would guess that they would expect that if they got together, that th the combined stock would be re-rated toward, maybe not to exactly the same multiple as Schlumberger, but get kind of an uplift towards it, and that would actually, um, that would give them a lot of value without necessarily messing with pricing one way or the other. Hey, do you think you look? I'm looking at uh, the prices of oil right now, Brent and, and WTI. You, you look at this week, and you saw those two. You saw WTI fall under 
West Texas. You know, saw it fall under 75. You saw Brent fall under 80. They're both down more than 30 percent. Now you have this big deal. Do, do you think that this week is kind of – this week says, look, something has fundamentally changed in the oil market. This is more than just the price going down. Yeah, and I think it's been – you know, it's been looking that way, I would say, um, for about – a month or so. Yeah. Um, this week, th- this is obviously a bit of a crescendo. And you know what I thought was interesting this week was that you had the the Saudi Arabian oil minister coming out and doing the usual thing of saying there's no price war, nothing's changed, the market's fine, um, and essentially the market just didn't listen right. at all, and uh, the price dropped even further. I mean, I think I think what has changed is that we've gone through a period of several years where there were lots of fundamental supports for the oil price. Um, you know, and just to name a couple, one was obviously uh, Chinese growth. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the second was um, a series of, you know, effective outages in a lot of OPEC countries because of the Arab Spring and various other problems. So, you know, particularly Libya, Iraq, uh, sanctions on Iran, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. Um, you know, what's been interesting for me this year and, and which has intensified um, as the year has gone on is that these factors don't seem to be offering as much support as they used to. So, you know, I think if you went back a few years and you, and you had said at that time that, you know, there are still sanctions on Iran plus, you know, trouble in Eastern Europe plus Islamic State running rampage across parts of Iraq, that would have offered real support for the oil price. It doesn't seem to do that now. And I think what's changed is I think people are starting to think maybe the worst of the disruptions of the Arab Spring are behind us. Now, to me, that's quite debatable because Libya is still a very volatile place. But I think the thing that was really changed... It's all still very volatile. Yeah. Um, although, although having said that, there's a, you know, given the problems in Libya, it's kind of amazing that production is as high as it is, mm-hmm. which I think unnerves some people because it comes back to this issue of, wow, things are really bad there, but they're still exporting loads of oil. Um, uh, but I think the thing that has really changed is people always assumed, although there was this assumption in the marketplace that if U.S. production, you know, kept growing and demand maybe slowed a bit, that Saudi Arabia would always take the pain, that it would curb its own production in order to balance the market. And Saudi Arabia has, in the same way it did at the end of the 90s and the same way it did in the mid-80s when it really crashed the price, um, it is signaling very strongly that it isn't going to play that role necessarily like it, because it, it, it feels... You know, because part of it, part of their conundrum is if Saudi Arabia cuts production, um, that keeps the oil price up, which encourages more production in places like the onshore U.S. So the onshore U.S. producers take more market share, and the 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 thing Saudi Arabia might see is a couple of years down the line, particularly if demand is weakening in places like China, it may then be faced with lower prices and lower market share, and then have to cut. And then it's really cutting into its revenue. So I think Saudi Arabia is doing kind of the rational thing right now to, um, to try and protect its market. 
Do you want to, you you mentioned before that you know none of the companies have really oh yeah Eric Holm what oh I'm saying I'm sorry Eric Holm I could, you know I could, Liam I could talk about oil and energy companies all day oh so could I it's too bad Liam went <laughs> if to I San didn't Francisco. have a job to do yeah <laughs> um yeah we should move on and get to you know Car- Mr Carney's expertise the banking industry. There was a big banking deal, and for years we've been talking about this for years. When's the wave, when is going to be the next wave of bank M and A? Right. There are way too many banks out there. It's like six or seven thousand. They need consolidation. Regulation from Dodd Frank is another reason that's supposed to drive sure. this, and we haven't seen it. But this week, BB and T, you know, is, is forecast how much? Eighteen billion for well, Susquehanna. We don't, we, we, we don't know. We, the they're not. Susquehanna is an $18 billion size bank. Right, they're, yeah. So they're, they're purchasing uh, Susquehanna, which is, um, a, you know, Pennsylvania, mostly the, the mid-Atlantic region bank. Um, it is the biggest bank deal we've had in quite some time. Um, the, and one of the things that makes it remarkable is a lot of people thought that while the regulators would be okay with small banks eating each other, you know, merging, getting together, and in some ways the regulators are encouraging that because as the cost of compliance with all the new Dodd-Frank regulation goes up, um, you it makes sense, you know, if you have to hire four new lawyers for every bank just to meet the, the right. rules, you merge with a guy and instead of hiring eight lawyers, you've hired four. You, you lower your – Lawyers aren't that cost. expensive. <laughs> <laughs> and know, what do you have it, against lawyers anyway, Carney? Yeah. As a uh, former practicing attorney, I will say that uh, the, the fewer lawyers you can hire, uh, the better off you usually are. Ouch. Um, yeah, mm. I'm, I'm sorry you know, to my former colleagues, but they can – compliance costs add up really quickly and so they – so banks have been smaller banks have been getting together to try to deal with this, um, but you know the phrase "too big to fail" is in everybody's mind. So there there is a belief out there, very widespread, and it is probably correct that the regulators do not want to see the biggest banks gobble up anything more. Right. Um, and uh, and you know the sort of there's a lot of like political outrage. I'm sure senators would hold hearings if J.P. Morgan tried to buy anything of size out there. So the big banks aren't doing anything. Uh, BB&T is not that big. It is uh, $190 billion in assets. Um, that's gigantic. It is one of the biggest banks in the country. But it is uh, you know, a tenth the size of uh, Wells Fargo. Not two trillion. Right, exactly. Trillion. Um, and so, uh, and it is. Its management uh, has been very vocal and uniquely vocal because you don't hear this from anybody else. That they think that they are of a size where they're allowed to do deals, where they can buy a twenty billion dollar bank, and um, and you know. So that kind of gives them a, a, an advantage, right? We we all talk about the advantages very big banks have. These guys can make strategic acquisitions. They actually now have three different deals going on. They're buying some. They're buying another bank. They're buying some branches of Citigroup in Texas, and then this deal. Um, the the bank they're buying in Kentucky is much smaller. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is the biggest one. But um, you know they're able to make the kind of strategic acquisitions that anybody bigger than them probably. The next biggest one just above them in, in terms of asset size is PNC, they have, but they're twice the size of them and right. they're probably at a level where the, go- the government wouldn't want to see them do get much bigger by buying uh, anybody else out there. Um, 
the interesting thing, though, I'd say is this isn't going to be a wave of acquisitions for the reason I was just talking about. One, the bigger guys can't make acquisitions. Some of the smaller guys might be able to. Um, but uh, if you if you look like so, BB and T, they could probably do one more of these deals. But a lot of the this deal brings them up to about two hundred billion dollars in assets. A lot of the regulations, the stricter regulations, kick in when you get above two fifty. And so, you know, in their minds, they're like, well, we we're already subject to the the sort of very big bank regulations that apply over fifty billion. But do you really want to like skip over the line into sort of, uh, you know, what they, you know. There's all sorts of acronyms, you know, SIFIs, GSIBs, but basically too big to fail, right? Do you want to cross that line at which point you, your, your regulatory burden goes way up? The way you have to measure your capital gets a right. lot more complex and a lot more – there's a lot more penalties attached. So they're probably willing to, you know, get to 220, um, you know, 230 maybe, but they, they don't want to hit 250. Uh, in, at least that's the widespread expectation. So you got – so you think – there can't be a wave, right? Who, where's the wave coming from? Um, you, you know, there might be eddies, right? Um, <laughs> s- small things going on, but uh, what about like this, like the idea of like super regionals, like you know, a bank that has, you know, it might be to have a good size in sort of Kentucky, sure. but like you know, wants to sort of expand and create, build itself into sort of a super regional, build itself into something closer to maybe a B a BB and T or something like that. I think we may see um, and rolling up those like small guys that are just like I can't deal with this regulatory burden right. of Dodd Frank. Right. I think we may see some of that. Um, uh, a sort of roll-up of uh, regional banks, um, particularly one driven by the cost of regulation, but two, uh, we had this weird thing in the market for the last couple of years where, um, if you were taken from both perspectives of a bank that was going to be an acquirer and a bank that was going to be a seller, if you're the acquirer, you'd really like to pay in your stock. But you don't want to pay in your stock if you think your stock is underpriced in the market. So you're sitting there going, huh. I don't want to buy them with my stock. I don't want to buy them in cash because you know cash is expensive. I don't want to buy them with my stock because I think my stock is dramatically underpriced. So I'm going to hold on to it. On the other hand, if you're the target, you're sitting there. You're one being the being the owner manager. You know, on the board of a target bank that gets acquired kind of means you retire usually. You yeah. know, so <laughs> so these guys are sitting there going, well, do I want to exit with my bank being worth you know with my Shares being worth four million when I thought they should be worth ten million. No, so I'm going to hold out. Um, so you had both sides saying, you know, our shares are underpriced, so we're not going to do a deal. What ends up, uh, but you, that's been the case for like three years, and I think you get a reset eventually. Guys are like, oh, so my shares aren't going to a three times uh, book value anytime soon, right? Where This looks like where we're going to trade. This is the new normal multiple for a bank. And at that point, people start to say, okay. Like, There's capitulation. Yeah, right. They, they, they've, they've, gotten, they've said, okay, this is real. This isn't, you know, we, we recovered a bit from the you know, financial crisis, but we're not going back to where we were prior to the crisis. And so I might as well do a deal. Plus, actually, just 
time goes by, right? So the guy who was 55 and didn't want to retire with $4 million is now 59. And he's like, all right, sure. Like, how much longer am I going to sit here? Just, you know, time rolling on makes a difference uh, to, you know, people's timelines. And so I think you may see more and more of these sort of mergers, particularly if um, – you know, sort of like at, there, there. You know, there are things going on in the economy. Stuff like oil prices falling. Um, you've had a lot of banks that have grown a lot based on the shale oil boom. So you may see, you know, some some of those banks that you know may have had like grandiose ambitions about how big they could get just on their own start to say, all right, growth looks more limited for us. Um, let's you know start thinking about doing deals with each other. Uh, and plus, they when they come to the realization like, well, we've got to merge with each other, the small guys, because we're not going to get picked up by the big guys, right? Uh, BB&T was out there as a buyer. As long as BB&T is out there, you're like, ah, I'm not going to do a cheaper deal with one of my you know peers. I'm going to wait till the big guy comes in and tries to buy me. Uh, as BB&T gets closer to the what what is perceived as the you know the line of 250, they haven't said that by the way. I should just say you know, they're, they're 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 not like no we're, we won't go above 250. I just think if they're smart, they wouldn't, and they are smart. Well, here's so. what I, I wonder though: is you don't want to go to 251, no. But if you could do a great deal, sure, that gets you to 375, right? You you would never tiptoe over the 250 right. level, right? Uh, but then you get into the problem of regulators, you know. Do regulators want to see BB&T and another, you know, two hundred billion dollar bank get together? I think they don't, right? And they, you I know, mean, they used to sign off on those all the time. Sure, right. right. Uh, you know, that's how we got these mega banks. Um, I think there's a lot of political pressure out there, um, and there's a, you know, there is a widespread view of like, well, we might not be able to break up these big guys, but let's not create more of them. Uh, mm-hmm. That might be a little unfair, right? Because there, I mean, there's a fairness argument to be made. Wait, you let Citigroup and Bank of America and J.P. Morgan get that big by making acquisitions and by in, through these giant mergers, and yet you now you've said like, sorry guys, we're you know tipping over the ladder. Nobody else gets to climb up that level again. Uh, so there's a fairness argument, but there's also I mean like that's all, that's the case with everything. That's the first movers, you know. Sure. I mean, advantage, and that's you know, right. You and know. and I think the fairness argument doesn't work so well for banks, right? Or like for crime, regulators, right? Crimea River. Oh, you can't get to be it too big with to my fail. parents, right? Uh, you know, as my dad used to say, uh, you know, whenever it's like, that's unfair, he'd just say life is unfair. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so uh, you know, yes, I'm sorry. Um, Hundred billion dollar banks, life is unfair. You are not going to be allowed to become a trillion dollar bank. Um, and regulators are intentionally trying to make it more and more expensive to become a trillion-dollar bank, um, to be a trillion-dollar bank. And so there's a good argument to be made that shareholders should really not want to see a bank get to a trillion dollars right. because the return on equity is going to get clobbered when you get to that size because the, the regulators you know, keep coming up with new ways of – penalizing them. You know, it's just, you know, capital requirement on top of new capital requirement on top of new one, on top of buffers, liquidity, leverage, all these things start kicking in. And uh, and I think they would even accelerate that if they saw that that wasn't enough of a deterrent, right? If, if P- PNC and BB&T tried to merge with each other, um, the regulators would be like, huh, we didn't make it tough enough, right? Uh, let's, you know, turn it up to 11 and see whether we can stop people from doing this. 
Um, and so that threat out there, I think, you know, a lot, a lot of what happens in bank regulation isn't sort of a formal ruling, you know, where um, you, you, the Halliburton deal, you know, that's gonna, that has to get approved by antitrust regulators. It, with, with banking, you know, it, a, a lot of the deals are almost sort of pre-approved in, in the sense that you, you don't do a deal unless you kind of already have figured out that the regulators, you, you think that they're going to say it's OK. BB&T has been very clear that they think that the regulators are OK with their deal. Um, you know, I mean, Citigroup actually broke the rules at the time, and on the when they merged back in the with Travelers, right? Yeah, and, they, yeah. and they said, oh, "Yeah, you know, don't worry about it. We think the rules will change," and they did. So, um, you uh, so when you know banks tend to, but it can work the other way, right? You if you think uh, you, that you you know that the regulators are okay with it, you'll just do it, even if it's technically against the rules. If you think they're not okay with it, even if it's technically allowed, you're probably not going to do it because you know bank supervisors have a lot of influence over what can happen. Um, I think you know Mr. Holm can t- bring us home with a, you know another uh, the final big deal we'll discuss. We'll do this one as a lightning round. Yeah, How's that? yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I, I want to know how uh, Warren Buffett you know can buy uh, you know roughly four billion dollar company and not spend any money. It's uh, it's pretty remarkable. Uh, with these other two discussions, we were talking about what the parallels are for the broader industries. There are no parallels yeah. when it comes to Warren Buffett. I mean, uh, this one is uh, sort of yet another way. And he's done this twice uh, recently in the last few months. This is the third time where he's traded shares that he owns. I'm trying to think. Yeah, no, all three cases. He traded shares that he owns for another asset, which means that he doesn't have to pay the capital gains that he would have paid had he just sold the stock outright. So what, what we're talking about here is the Duracell deal. Uh, he made a deal with Procter & Gamble that he's going to uh, take Duracell from them plus $1.7 billion that they're putting into the, that Procter & Gamble is putting into the company. Um, and they're going to get his Procter & Gamble stock. So, Carney, you were talking about banks That's using awesome. their own stock to, to buy a company. Buffett is using Procter & Gamble's <laughs> stock to buy something from Procter and Gamble, it, it, it's an amazing, amazing feat of you know financial engineering. Exactly. And, um, and Warren Buffett actually, we should there should be a Warren Buffett rule, right? Because if if other people, if other billionaires tried to do a deal that let them avoid a lot of capital gains taxes, that would be you know the the people would be outraged. Yeah, because like because we have to go back these shares. Go back to I think the late eighty eight, eighty nine. Right, right. Well, they he got the Procter and Gamble shares because he had uh, a, a stake, stake in, in Gillette. Gillette, and he took the stake in Gillette because Ron um, Perlman was uh, was you know looking to make, make a move a on move Gillette. Gillette. Yeah, and so he came in sort of as the white knight. He took these convertible furs. He's yeah. the hero in every story. Right? <laughs> like he comes in, he's like, oh no. Well, that the, the other Perlman. way he's a hero with this, to at least to Procter and Gamble shareholders is that um, Procter & Gamble would have had to there, – there would have been tax consequences to Procter & Gamble as well if they had sold Duracell for cash. And they had said they were looking for a way to unload Duracell. Yeah. So, so no and, one's paying taxes. I, I, I was saying that a little too definitively. I'm pretty sure no one's paying any taxes on this deal or, or the tax consequences are pretty minimal 
on this transaction, this massive transaction. And so what happens to the shares too? I mean, like, there's, he, I'm assuming Procter Gamble's, you know, I think it's they like just retired the shares. Yeah, it's, right? it's like yeah. A, it's, you know, it's like sort of it's like a buyback. A buyback yeah. But except for the shareholders, don't you know? There's no cash going to the shareholders. Right. But it but does they, reduce they, the right. share count. Which right. They will, get reverse diluted or whatever yeah. the phrase is, and so they you know, right yeah. undiluted, and so they 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 get. Um, their shares are worth more, you know exactly. a bigger stake in the company. That, that's higher for them, for sure. right? And they, um, but you know, I mean, I the, the tax aspect is is interesting to me because Warren Buffett um, is an advocate of higher taxes, um, and, uh, and oh, just, no, just on like the you know sure the, right. He thinks that the, he actually the wealthiest right. He thinks that um, particularly his talked about the way that hedge funds get the carried interest advantage and that and that yeah, that's true, and they true. pay capital gains taxes on this but here he's not even it's not even he's avoiding even paying the capital gains tax rate um, oh yeah yeah by doing no, this. i mean what buffett would tell you is that he is for uh changing the law sure but he is not going to play by different rules than everyone else oh, of course. he is no, going he, to yeah, right. uh um explode he wouldn't use the word exploit, but I will exploit the tax system to all of its advantages. Uh, and if you don't like it, you should change the rules. And by the way, he does not like the rules for uh, our, you know, personal income tax, right? Sure. Now. I, I mean, I think you know, I think that's totally fair game. I'm, right. You know, nobody. He, you you I, you are certainly not the first to reach that conclusion, and you're certainly not wrong. <laughs> well, I and you know, very uh, clearly, you know, he. Everybody has every right to to use the tax code to the greatest advantage they can. Um, but uh, what what strikes me is not so much that he's doing that, and you know, it's I don't think it's hypocritical. But what I think is interesting is uh, that he there's like a you know the the Warren Buffett effect, right? And when other companies do the you know similar things. Right, there's no outcry over right an you inversion know, or right something wait, like right that. exactly when you, well, all the inversion stuff people go oh, you know it's un American they're avoiding taxes and all of that sort of thing uh, but you know although uh, Buffett did get some blowback for participating in the Tim Hortons transaction but even then it, like, people didn't focus that you know it, it, I, it, let me put it this way if I were doing a deal that was going to you know save me a lot of money in taxes. I don't want to get Warren Buffett in on the deal because <laughs> you know they're you know you'd be like, golden oh. right yeah. people are like oh They'll you know sail through there's Uncle Warren it's cool he said it's a good deal and, and, so. and, he, and, he, uh, and he oftentimes gets a good deal out of it too like yeah. I mean, you're like you know well, Warren as long as you're on his brand. side yeah if you're on his side the, yeah. the brand usually gives you a lot of negotiating power the other interesting thing though about this deal was. He didn't do. He had played very little role in the go- exactly. negotiations. Yes, no, that's a great point, Grocer. And our colleague Prita highlighted this in her story today. Um, uh, I think she was the only one who had it. The, behind the scenes, this deal was done by Todd Combs, who is a relatively recent Berkshire hire. Um, as you guys know, and most of our audience knows, Warren Buffett manages a big chunk of Berkshire's stock portfolio and always has. But in the last few years, he's brought in two guys who are going to do it after he's gone. One of those is a gentleman named Todd Combs, and um, the other one is named Ted Weschler. And they started out just managing money, managing investments, and they've started to play a larger role at Berkshire in the last couple years here, where they are um, involved. I, I believe one of them is involved in, in an effort to sort of uh, buy up some mortgage assets, some mortgage servicing operations. Um, they, they're out looking at uh, you know not just equity. They're looking at debt. Um, and I and and apparently Todd Combs was involved um, in a major way in making sure this deal got done as well. 
Um, so if you're a Berkshire shareholder or a Buffett watcher, you would be intrigued by that fact because it, it tells you that the company can continue to function um, when Warren Buffett is no longer at the helm um, if they can do deals like these that are extremely advantageous. The other thing, too, that I found very interesting was, in, you know, in, I think Preta wrote it. Um, you know, right in that sort of same section where she's talking about Todd Combs, was like, say, you know, that it was Warren, you know, Warren Buffett and Todd Combs' preference to, to instead of buying stock, investing in stocks, right. to buy companies. Yeah. And, yeah. and what does that say about, you know, the stock market right now? Yeah. You, um, you could certainly extrapolate from that. I've heard Buffett say that a few times, even when the market is lower. Okay. Um, but, uh, and and I've heard him say recently that he is finding stocks that he wants to buy as well. He said that in the last couple months. Um, so I don't know if you can extrapolate from that necessarily. But Buffett did start, you know, many years ago, decades ago, um, as a guy who bought stocks, and he was known as a stock picker. Um, and that sort of changed long before people realized that. Long before that became. Um, you know, he, he was known as a stock picker for much longer than his primary business was picking stocks, let's right. say. Um, but he, he's been saying for a long time that Berkshire is a collection of companies, some of which they own outright and some of which they own with a minority interest, right. uh, such as IBM where they have a huge stake or Coca-Cola where they have a huge stake. But it's just – you Wells know, Fargo. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, is, is anyone going to ask if this battery business is any good? <laughs> you guys are well, talking about all these different. Uh, did he did he buy a good product? EBITDA from last year, four hundred and fourteen million in earnings. Is that up or down? I don't know. Okay. So Just I mean, you know, there's always the question, right? Like, if Warren Buffett wants to buy something, you know, it's the opposite we, question we ask a lot of times. Like, if they're selling, why would you buy it? Right. A lot of times with Warren Buffett, you're thinking. Well, Wait, if Warren wants right. this, why are you why selling are they, yeah, it? And selling he, when, it? when he got into car dealerships just a few weeks ago, you saw all the other car dealership stocks jump up on that exact thought. Um, this one's more of a classic than the car dealership was because Duracell, it's just Duracell and Energizer. There's no one else who's even close. No, I mean, right? this, it's a classic, get the brand, get, it has a moat, it's unassailable. And he has, of course, been wrong a few times on un- what unassailable really means on on. You know, having a lasting competitive advantage, you could argue that Coca-Cola is that's slipping away at some pace. You know, right? Um, well, and and you look at Procter and Gamble. You know, their their pressures and their goals are different from Warren's. Yes. You know, they they're they, looking to get rid of brands. Right. They, they've said they, I, they, they have a growth. Brands. They have a growth problem. They have too right. many brands that just are not going to grow. With poor like, margins, like batteries. Right. Where Warren apparently, I guess he doesn't care. I mean, as long as it's profitable and it makes him money, right? If this, he doesn't have the same shareholder pressure that Procter and Gamble has, right? Exactly. Not by a long shot, right? Yeah. He can and he can and does hold on to companies that aren't necessarily great growth stories, but are you know they churn off right. a return they throw and out money. right yep, and right, so right. he and he and that and he's he's very vocal about that being just fine mm-hmm. and um, and so you know. And his shareholders obviously love that idea. That's why they bought those shares. Nobody thinks that Warren Buffett is, you know, is like aggressively pursuing growth companies. He is. Um, he's, he explains what his strategy is. Whereas, you know, as you're saying, you know, in the broader market, there is pressure on companies to grow earnings, to get rid of mm-hmm. assets that are, you know, sort of. Uh, 
in static mode. Um, and, you know, that leaves room for people like Warren Buffett who have a different perspective to come in and buy things and let that keep churning out profits. Well said, Carney. <laughs> Thank you very much. That's a good place to end it. We'll uh, let John Carney have the, the last word. This is uh, Steve Grosser with John Carney, Paul Vigna, and Eric Holm. And, and Liam, Liam Denning. Liam Denning from San Francisco. Uh, join us next week. Now this. By 2025, it's estimated that half the world's population will lack access to safe drinking water. A sorry state of affairs as two-thirds of our planet is covered by water. We are helping develop solutions for salt water to satisfy the thirst of future generations. BASF, the chemical company. This episode is brought to you by Vanta. Vanta's trust management platform helps you quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for SOC 2, ISO 27001, and more. Learn how by watching Vanta's on-demand demo at vanta.com slash WSJ.